Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I apologize for my tardy start. It's not my fault. Computer problems. We had a little system crash, and I think we're up and running. Baruch Hashem. So, today, we are going to be learning the Gemara about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. This is part two in a three-part episode, uh, in a three-part series about the making of the great Rabbi Shimon. As we have begun in the previous episode, these are not stories that happened with or to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. These are the stories of the making of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. That's a thesis that we started previously, and it's one we're going to continue. Bezrat Hashem, with God's help today, before we begin the emergence, I want to acknowledge and thank our generous sponsors, dear show members, Felix and Rita Zilnik, commemorating Rita's father's yard site, and his name was Yona Ben David. And I might add that he was a man who observed his Yiddishkeit under great sacrifice at a time when the Iron Curtain had fallen, and it wasn't simple. It wasn't simple to maintain one's Yiddishkeit. And as we talked about in the previous episode, it's that kind of Mesiris Nefesh, it's that kind of sacrifice that ultimately is able to remake us entirely. We are studying Mesechet Shabbat. We're on page 33, side B. And just to bring you up to snuff, refresh your memory, or perhaps if you're joining for the first time, there was a rabbinical roundtable. This is at a very difficult juncture in Jewish history. The Romans have occupied the land of Eretz Yisrael. And might I add, they did so in the most brutal of fashions. Forgive me. Having said that, they did build infrastructure, and that was the discussion. Should we appreciate the Roman contribution to the infrastructure of the land, or was it all selfish in nature, and ultimately, we the Jewish people should not be thanking our tormentors or showing appreciation for those who brutally repressed the Jewish people in our own homeland. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai speaks out in a forthright manner against the Roman government, and as such, he's forced to go into hiding. There's a death sentence that hangs over his head. It seems that his son might have been implicated as well because the two ultimately seek refuge in a cave. They have no provisions. They can't go out to forage for food. They're being looked for. We read about a miraculous carob tree in a spring of water and an extraordinary 12 years 
of spiritual pursuit. Not knowing when they would leave the cave. They literally buried themselves up to the neck in sand so that they wouldn't be in an immodest kind of situation, donning their clothes only for prayer. And not because they couldn't pray in the sand, but because when one prays, one should prepare themselves. And that brings us up to today's Gemara. Daflam Gimel Amid Beis. I want to remind uh, our viewers that if you have questions, I'm happy to try and answer them to the best of my ability. But I'm not going to see you on Facebook. So if you're on Facebook, hop on over to YouTube. And on the YouTube Live, there's a, a chat. And I see Michael David's there. And Sean Neil Scott is there. So anybody who wants to say anything of meaning, mission, or importance, please take a moment to send a message, and I will try and respond. Now tells us that this situation, this extraordinary situation went on for a very long time. There they remained for a full 12 years in the cave. And then also Elio, Elijah arrives. He rises at the entrance to the cave. Omar and he says, Who's going to tell Bar Yochoi that the Caesar is dead? And his decree has been nullified. So I'm going to go through the story of the Gemara quickly and tell you all the things that on the surface don't make sense to me. Nafako, so they went out. Chazuinish, they saw a person. This person is uh, sowing, planting. Omar, he said, What? They set aside eternity and they get involved in ephemeral reality. They're doing things like planting and Sewing? He'd be studying Torah. And they were so upset about this. Anywhere they placed their eyes, immediately a fire burst out. Yatsa Baska, the heavenly voice rings out. and says, You went out of your cave to destroy my world? Go back to your cave. So Ozul, Esivu, Teresa Yarchi. They went back and remained there for 12 months. Why did they remain there for 12 months? Hmm. They said, Mishpat The wicked stay in hell for 12 months. So we'll go to hell for 12 months. And then a heavenly voice rings out and says, Go out of your cave. So they go out. And now, it seems that Rebbe Lazar is causing the damage, but Rebbe Shimon heals or fixes everything that he does. So maybe <laughs> there's some more, like, you know, visual arson, and, but Rebbe Lazar, Rebbe Shimon fixes it. 
And Rabbi Shimon says, you know what, my son? It's okay. You and I, you know, we're in a high spiritual level. That's good enough. And then the Gemara says, they met some older fellow. He's rushing along. He's got flowers for Shabbat. And they said, where are you going? He says, I'm going home for Shabbat. What do you have in your hands? I got some uh, myrtles. And he said, uh, why do you have two bundles? You should have one bundle. He says, well, you know, Shabbat is Zachor v'Shamor. The Torah uses two expressions. So Rabbi Shimon turns to his son and says, you see, the Jewish people, they love the mitzvahs, and, and they felt better. I just like, read through the story. And I have to tell you that when you read a story and you stop and think about it, it does not make a lot of sense. Just about every two words seems to be questionable or difficult. I'm going to restudy the story with you now. I'm going to point out and highlight the areas in which I found difficulty. And then I'm going to share with you the way our sages, our rabbis, our teachers resolve these issues. And I think that by the end of the next hour, you and I will both be on a high because we will have discovered the amazing, profound, uplifting, and inspirational messages that are encoded into the Gemara. So, what do you say? Deal? Let's do it. So let's start off, let's take it from the top. The Gemara says that this went on, this business went on for Isivu Tresarshoni. There they were for 12 months, 12 years. Bimarto. I mean, the first question that I have is, why is that even so important to know how long they were in the cave for? And why was it exactly 12 years? Was it 12 years to the day? Maybe it was, which would beg the question, why did it last for exactly 12 years? There's like something about the 12 year. Last week I shared with you that when the Rebbe spoke about the stories of the Gemara and he references the very stories we're studying now, he said they all have a lesson for life. It's not just something that happened. There's something very precise, something very exact, something very specific that's going on here. So, the Ben Yahiyado says something very interesting. He says, 12, ah, there's 12 tribes. So Rabbi Shimon and his son, who, by the way, we don't know whose tribe they're from, at least I don't think so, had to be in a cave and suffer for 12 months because there's 12 tribes. What does that mean? Why does Reb Shim Bar Yochai's suffering fix or engineer something for 12 tribes? Why does it have to be 12 years? Why, uh, you, you, get, you get to do, it's not like, uh, you know, you, you do the crime, you do the time. Like, what, what, what did they do wrong? He, he stood up for the Jewish people. He refused to bow his head in submission. He refused to be cowed. He called it like it is. He said, these are brutal occupiers. They massacred our people. They have no good intentions for us. And we don't have to say thank you. 
And we don't have to be grateful. We aren't capable of dislodging them. We aren't capable of sending them out of our country, giving them the boot. So we suffer. But that's about it. So this is kind of the, the question that begs from the answer. Like, I was very confused. I don't understand. What, what, is, what is the Ben Yod trying to say? And then, so we hear that that they're for 12 years in this cave. 12 years. And then, Osa Eliyahu, Eliyahu comes. V'kom apischa. He, he stands in the doorway. So I have to tell you something that you couldn't know. But the Ben Yehiyada himself notes that in the Medrash, it says Eliyahu Hanavi was a daily visitor. He came and studied Torah with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Rabbi Lazar on a daily basis. So he came to study Torah with them on a regular basis. And there are stories like this of Eliyahu Hanavi studying Torah with great tzaddikim. Many stories like this. Incidentally, I know Eliyahu Hanavi comes to your Seder. He came to mine too. But he can be at many Siddharim at the same time. However, when Eliyahu Hanavi invests himself in some kind of terrestrial appearance, or something even remotely terrestrial, which tzaddikim are actually seeing and they're getting a visitor, then we know we can only be in one place at one time. We know this because the Zohar tells a story of Eliyahu Hanavi missing at a session where he would join the sages of the Zohar in something called the Idra. And one day he didn't come and they said, where were you? And he said, I had to go save a sage who was in dire straits. His name was Rav Hamnuna Saba. And there's a beautiful rumination from the Rebbe about this. And the Rebbe asks the question, Eliyahu Navi can visit thousands of homes, but somehow he couldn't make it to the cave because he was saving Rav Hamnuna Saba. And the answer is that when Eliyahu Navi assumes a particular form, even if it's a very refined form, he can only be in one space at one time. So Eliyahu Navi arriving here is not the way he comes to our Seder and takes a sip of wine. It's not the way he comes to a Brit Milah and takes a seat in the chair where the bris is going to be performed. Here, we're speaking about Eliyahu Hanavi came. So, if Eliyahu Hanavi came on a regular basis, how do you understand the words of the Gemara? That at the end of 12 years, he just stood at the doorway. Furthermore, just like, let, let's, once we're going down this path, what would happen if I would doctor a Gemara for you? I would take out the words, V'kom apischa de ma'arta. He stood at the door of the cave. I, wouldn't, I would just remove these words. Surgically remove them. You know, like a bold delete. I'll make you a new Gemara. And they would say, Asa Eliyahu Amar man Eliyahu came and he said, who's going to tell him? Or even, better yet, take out that word too. Say, Eliyahu came and he said, Bar Yochoi, Miss Kesar. Rabbi, you're free. The Caesar is dead. Perfect. But that's not what the Gemara says. The Gemara says that Eliyahu Navi came and he stood at the door. 
and he was kind of like talking, but he wasn't talking to Rabbi Shimon. He wasn't talking to Rabbi Lazar. He's talking to uh, the great outdoors. He's doing uh, an Elijah soliloquy. He says, hmm, I wonder who's going to tell Bar Yochai. I'm wondering, wow, who's going to tell him? That the Caesar, who's going to tell him? You just did. <laughs> what does that even mean? And they seem to get the message very quickly. What do they do? As soon as they hear that the Caesar is dead and that the death sentence is no longer in play. Nafaku, they immediately went out. So why didn't he just tell them? Guys, you're free. You can leave, rabbis. Your exile is over. Clearly the Gemara is trying to tell us something. In the end, as you remember we just read this a moment ago, Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Lazar end up going back to the cave. And this time we spell out the number of months and all of a sudden they became wicked. These holy people who stood up for the Jewish people, who suffered for 12 years for no sin, now they have to go to Gehenim for 12 months. You know, Kaddish, which is said to alleviate the suffering of a neshama as it moves its way through the pur purgatorial process, we say Kaddish for 11 months because we say that the average decent person who has some reverence and awe for Hashem, some care, some passion, some fervor from Yiddishkeit, it's an 11-month adjustment process. But the wicked, the wicked... For them, it's 12 months. And because, who's going to say, my loved one was wicked? And even if you'd say that, who says it's true? Who are we to judge? Do we know somebody's challenges? So we make the assumption that everybody is kind of decent. And it's almost unheard of, almost unheard of, to say Kaddish for 12 months. Because that's only for those who are supremely wicked. Absolutely depraved. So somehow, Rabbi Shimon and his son have to be reincarcerated in this earthly or terrestrial Gehinnom, purgatory of sorts, going back into the ground, buried alive literally, just putting on their clothes for davening, and... They have to do it for 12 months, not 11, because the wicked suffer for 12. But they're not wicked. If you think about this Gemara, it actually doesn't make any sense. At least, not on the surface. So the Ben Yahayada says something very interesting. He says that you have to be in the Ma'ara, for 13, not 12 years, 13 years. Why? <laughs> because there are 13 tribes. Because the tribe of Yosef is counted as Menashe and Ephraim. So if you enumerate the names of all the tribes, and you include Levi, and you include Menashe and Ephraim, you have not 12, but 13. Uh -huh. So now we know that Rabbi Shimon and his son have to suffer 
not for 12 tribes, but for 13 tribes. Wonderful. So they suffer for 13 tribes, and because Elio Hanavi knew they had to go back in for a 13th year, he didn't want to tell them to go out. It wouldn't look good. Elio Hanavi will tell them to go out. And then they ended back in. So he never says anything. He just comes to the door. He says, all right, uh, I'm not sure who's going to tell them, but the Caesar is dead. And they understand, oh, Caesar's dead. No reason to suffer for, for, for pointlessly. Caesar's dead. So they go out. And then this unusual set of circumstances happen. They come out, and all of a sudden, they're causing fires everywhere. And God says, you came to destroy my world? Go right back into your cave. So they go back and suffer for another 12 months, and then they come out, and oh, it's not as bad. And this time, only Rebbe Lazar is causing arson by glance. But Rebbe Shimon is doing restoration with his look. I mean, that's what it says in the Gemara. <laughs> what, what, what is going on here? What does this mean? So this is, this is uh, I think, how we have to understand the Gemara from for starters. As we developed in the previous episode, The Fugitive, the emergence follows along the same lines. It's clear that the events of the Ma'ara, the sacrifice, the commitment, the devotion, the otherworldly kind of terrestrial existence experienced by Rabbi Shimon and his son still in terrestrial form is almost unreplicated. And it caused a transformation. In the famous song, Bar Yochai Nimshachta Ashrecha, in the second stanza, we say clearly that through the cave you rose to greatness. It's clearly stated. Rabbi Shimon's Life's mission was not simply to teach halacha, to teach rules of Torah, law, the Mishnah. There were many tanoim, many sages, hundreds of outstanding sages during the period of those few centuries who were tanoim and amaroim, who taught Torah and preserved the values and the teachings of Judaism for posterity. But Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai makes a unique contribution. He is the one who documents Kabbalah, the mystical dimension of Torah. He brings the mystical dimension, if you will, down into this reality. Before Rabbi Shimon, before the book of Zohar, Kabbalah did not really exist within the framework of what we will call normative, everyday Jewish experience. There were always people who were keenly aware of the mystical secrets of Torah. But it was never something that was taught, and it was never something that was documented. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai promulgates what you could best call a paradigm shift, a massive change. And it is said that he actually begins the process of universal redemption because it says, delay with your volume, with your book, the Zohar, 
Yifkun be mi be galuta, the Jewish people, will leave exile. In order for Reb Shimon to do this, he had to be transformed. The different tribes of the Jewish people represent different framework or methodology of relating, connecting to Hashem and nurturing that special relationship. Our sages tell us that there are 12 different systems of prayer, nuschaot, liturgy, through which the individual tribes would connect to God through. The word prayer, broadly speaking, relates to the concept of bonding, creating a sense of oneness. There's a word in the Mishnah, a person who fuses an added layer of clay to a piece of pottery. When we pray, we, we become connected to Hashem. We fuse ourselves. We develop an intimate relationship with God. Different shvatim, different tribes have their own structure, their own unique spiritual DNA. Each of the tribes experiences the majesty and the pageantry of Judaism in a different fashion. When the Mishkan had to be dedicated, there were 12 offerings representing the 12 tribes. Levi wasn't represented. Aaron, the leader of the tribe, felt very bad. God says to him, don't you worry. You'll be kindling the menorah. So the Kohanim, or the tribe of Levi, has its methodology, its way, its frame, and the different tribes have their ways and their frames. As we learned in the previous episode, by virtue of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's almost divesting himself of his physicality and eating miraculous food, drinking miraculous water or hydration, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is made over. Now, the book of Zohar is not in the purview or domain of a particular tribe of the Jewish people. It belongs to us all. Before Moshe Rabbeinu's terrestrial passing, as a matter of fact, he wrote 13 Sifrei Torah. Each tribe received one of those Torah scrolls. The 13th was placed in the Aron HaKodesh, in the Holy of Holies in the Beis HaMikdash. That was necessary because Moshe Rabbeinu had to bequeath the Torah to each tribe in a unique fashion. You know, Lagba Omer is paraphrased as the Matan Torah of the mystical, spiritual teachings of Judaism, Kabbalah. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who is going to become Hashem's vehicle, God's envelope, his point of diffusion, through which the light and the energy, the teaching and the wisdom of Kabbalah will now come to the Jewish people and become part and parcel of the tapestry of who they are, woven into our DNA from this point and onward, it has to be achieved in multiple ways so that every single member that every single individual within Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, should be able to relate to and absorb the energy and vivacity of these teachings. So the Ben Yoda says, indeed, he needed to be in that cave for 12 years. 
Now here's the thing. Leaving this kind of reality, almost like going to heaven and coming back, it's not exactly an easy process. Something happened to them in that cave. They reached such a level of holiness, such a level of transcendence, that they were going to be challenged. They wouldn't be able to relate to the physical world, although they were, if you will, still physical bodies. They weren't going to be able to relate to a physical, normative world, to everyday behavior. They couldn't. You'll see it in the Gemara. You know, Moshe Rabbeinu went up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and then had to do that another two times. And when he was finished those experiences, his body basically melted. The physicality of his neshama, of his body, no longer covered the, the energy, the radiance of his soul. His neshama shone in his face. Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't really a, a normal person anymore. He didn't do everyday things. He could never be married again. The Medrash uh, talks about Moshe Rabbeinu as chazi adam and chazi malach. He's like half angelic. He was an angel amongst us. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai leaves this cave after 12 years of eating what could be termed proverbial manna, drinking miraculous water, having literally forgotten about his physicality, quite possibly his body stopping or seizing its normative bodily functions, as we talked about in the previous episode. So at this point, he has to try to go back out into the world, and it's a very, very rocky meeting. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. He, he tries to engage, he tries to relate, and, and it's not working to what happens. So he's got to go back. He's got to go back for another year, another 12 months. We get the number 12 again. He's got to go back in there. And he's there for a total of 13 months this way, but in those 12 months, he has to somehow figure out a way to relate to a regular world, despite the fact that he's no longer a regular person. Now, had he been there for 13 years, he would have had to suffer additionally. And that wouldn't be fair. But had he not had the experience of leaving the cave and encountering the world and recoiling from it and going back into the cave to kind of readjust himself, he never would have been able to bring the teachings of Zohar to the world. So what happens? Well, Eliyahu Hanavi arranges it so that he just puts the word out. He says, hmm, I wonder who's going to tell him. I wonder who's going to tell him. So they hear these words, and without a, a, another thought, we're free. We don't have to be in this terrible situation anymore. So they leave. And what happens? Happens. They need to go back. Now God himself, through a heavenly voice, tells him, go back to the cave. And then at the end of those 12 months, it's God himself who tells him, you may now leave. So let's go back now and read the Gemara with this kind of, with this knowledge, with this information. Gemara is telling us this. This transformative process had to take place for a full 12 years. They had to be in this cave, this cocoon. 
Eliyahu Hanavi comes. And Eliyahu Hanavi is just standing in the doorway. I want you to know there is an opinion that Asa Eliyahu could be like a euphemism. It doesn't even mean it was actually Eliyahu. Because if it was Eliyahu, they say, hey, Eliyahu Hanavi has been talking to us all this time, and now he's just standing at the doorway. In fact, in the Sefer, Beis Yaakov, he suggests that a bearer of good news is called Eliyahu. And because here's a person recounting a piece of good news, not to them directly, so it's euphemistically referred to as Elio. <laughs> you can ask the question, how did he know where they were? I would tell you he didn't. He went to the mouth of the cave. Who knows how many caves, who knows what kind of maze there was. He was in the area. He got to scream, to yell, the Caesar is dead. Who will tell Bar Yochai? Maybe he couldn't tell Bar Yochai. Elio and Avi knew exactly where they were. He was at somehow at an opening, if you want to take the Beit Yaakov's approach. <laughs> it's a very cute little story. It's a real story. So my father's paternal grandfather, his name was Rav Arya Leib. He was the last rabbi of, today they say, Kiev. I grew up as a kid hearing about Kiev. My grandfather spent his adolescence in Kiev. Kiev. So the, the communists had stamped out all of Jewish life. Brutally, brutal repression of Jewish life. And it was the, the last pocket of a few Jews who maintained their love and their loyalty to Hashem and His Torah. Just literally a handful of families. And they congregated in the basement of a shul called Kupecheske Shul, which in my understanding means the merchant's shul. It was like a, a shul built by merchants in the basement. And there my elder Zayda, my great-grandfather, was the last functioning Rav until his arrest in 1939. So he ends up being incarcerated and he was arrested around the same time as this is when Stalin crushed all the Yiddishkeit resistance. Everything went under, underground after. So at the, in the same few days, my other great-grandfather, my, my grandmother's father was arrested as well in Kharkov. They call him Kharkiv today. And uh, the famous Rav Levi Yitzchak, the Rebbe's father, who was the Rav in what was called Yakatinoslav and then the Nep Petrovs, today the Nipro, he was arrested at that time as well. Rabbanim across Russia were arrested. Very few survivors. So they, they were all held in detention for a long period of time and tortured and sent from one jail to the next. And my great-grandfather ends up receiving a five-year sentence to be sent to a distant village in northeastern Kazakhstan. The village is called Ni Kurgan. And the only one who was sent into even more remote place was the Rebbe's father. He was sent to a place called Chile. And the communists were diabolical because it was brilliant. Instead of them spending money feeding prisoners, they sent you away. They didn't have to w spend money on, on a guard, on a prison. Figure it out yourself. Who are these people? Rabbis. And even from the intelligentsia, from the secular world, other faith leaders, poets, journalists, people who didn't know how to forage and take care of themselves necessarily. 
and you went to this remote place with very simple people, peasants, and figure it out. You had to show up once a week at the local police station and register, or you had a death sentence, and they'd find you eventually and shoot you. So it was, you were afraid to leave. And if you were caught and somebody asked you for papers, you're finished. So the Rebbe's father is sent to Chile, which is about, I don't know, I actually looked it up on Google Maps. You can, you can see it. And the train, so he, my great-grandfather gets thrown off the train in, 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 in Kurgan, and the Rebbe's father continues. And what I'm going to tell you now is a story that the Rebbe's mother, Rebbe Tzachana, told my grandfather. She said that when she came to Chile to be with her husband to try and help him, she arrived on a Friday afternoon, and she had sent a telegram she was coming. And the Rebbe's father, Rebbe Levi, came to the train station, and Rebbe Sechana told my Kent. when I saw him, I couldn't recognize him, she said. And we actually have a visual of this because there's a picture taken of Rebbe Levi Yitzchak later on when he was an emaciated shadow of himself. And then it was recently discovered about 20 years ago from the KGB files, a picture which is just a few weeks after his arrest. And it's, it doesn't look like the same person. She said to Maizeda, till I heard his voice, I didn't believe it was him. He was a strong, robust man. He was a, a scarecrow. Literally a bag of bones. And it's Friday afternoon. So she said, what's going to be with Shabbos? And he said to her, don't worry, Eliyahu Navi was here. And she looked at him quizzically. Eliyahu Navi says, yeah, 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 you'll see. And she thought he was just trying to be humorous about an awful situation. And she came to wherever they had, the, he had shelter. And there was some kind of rough, you know, kugel of sorts on the table. And Rabbi Levi Yitzchak was a holy, holy man who was totally divested from material reality. He didn't know how to turn a potato into a kugel. And Rebbe Zahannes was incredulous. She said, where did this come from? And Rebbe Levick said, Eliyoa Novi's dog event. And she said, next week you'll see him too. So the next Thursday night, this was illegal. My, my great-grandfather used to sneak out of Nikurgan. I think he'd sneak onto a train or the caboose, take a ride to where Rebbe Levick was, prepare some food for him, and then get back to his village before he could be discovered. So the next week when he came... Rebbe Levick said to Rebbe Tzachana, Oh, Adoz Eliyoh Hanavi. And I used to wonder, when I heard the story from Isaiah, why did, why did Rebbe Levick call him Eliyoh Hanavi? He wasn't Eliyoh Hanavi. But this, this is the answer. Because in, in Torah language, when a person is a bearer of good news, Oh, it's Eliyoh Hanavi. It doesn't mean it's literally Eliyoh Hanavi. When a person fortuitously shows up and, and, and enables or helps or assists, you know, just in the nick of the moment or brings news, we can refer to it euphemistically as Elio. Elio is a man. Elio is a malach. Elio is a concept. It's a concept, Elio. And the truth is that when you think about the, the, the question that the Ben Yoyada asks, Eliyahu and Avi was studying Torah with him every day. It's very odd that the Gemara says he, he would come to the door. Why weren't they, like, suspicious? He said, what? what? What is this? So clearly, there's this emphasis on 
a message being received, but they were never told to leave. So it would have been a dishonorable thing for Bishim Berchai to be told to leave and then sent back. So a message. Maybe it was Eliyahu Hanavi. Maybe it was another Malach. Maybe it was a person. We don't know. He got the word. The word was the Caesar's dead. He didn't get a direct message, leave your cave. Because if he would get a message, leave the cave, it would look terrible. He has to be sent back to the cave. So actually, he left on his own volition. But from heaven, he was destined to be there for 13 years. And from heaven, it was destined to be a rocky re-entry into the atmosphere. It was not going to go easy. And that's exactly what happened. So Nafaku, Chazuinshi, he sees people. What are they doing? These people are karvivazori. These people are planting. They're plowing and planting. They can't understand this. These are people who have been living for miraculous food with utter, absolute dedication and devotion, a self-sacrifice that's off the charts for 12 years. Buried alive for 12 years. Did nothing but holiness. Lived totally divested existences. And they see people. Yidin with neshamas. <laughs> what are they doing? Koravi, Vizori. Omar, he said, For heaven's sake, what's going on over here? How is it possible that people don't realize that this is ephemeral, this is, this is filth, this is dirt, it's soil. We're talking about eternity. A word of Torah studying this world is immeasurable, invaluable. How could people leave that for agricultural pursuit? They couldn't understand it. In their new position, this couldn't make sense. They, they, they couldn't appreciate it. They couldn't relate to it. So, like, what, what did they expect? That everybody's going to have a miraculous carob grow in his backyard? Everybody's going to have water that shows up miraculously? The whole thing seems totally unreasonable. So Rashi says, Koravi Khershim, they were they were plowing. He says, You need food. So non-Jews could do that. But you're Jewish, you're supposed to be learning Torah, they said. God arranges that there will be somebody will come along and say, You're doing this? Rabbi, go learn Torah. That's more important. I'll take care of this for you. Rabbi Shimon Reichai said, look, we, we were in a cave. God took care of us. Surely if somebody would dedicate themselves to Yiddishkeit to the point of self-sacrifice, Hashem will take care of them. In their present state, they, they couldn't, it just didn't compute anymore. They literally were not part of this world. So what was happening? Kol makim Wherever they looked, miyad nisraf. It simply was burnt. Now, there's very interesting. The same Beis Yaakov who says, it might not be Eliyahu Navi himself, he also suggests that this doesn't have to mean that that place was literally burnt. He says, what it could mean is that they looked at the people and said, what are you doing? 
It was like they were like a scorched earth. They, they, they were convincing the people to just to drop what they were doing and to engage in a higher pursuit. It's like burnt. You know, people say burning your bridges. It's a euphemism. But maybe it was literal. We don't know. It's not, it's not a verse. A verse in the Torah is literal. The, the, the Gemara could be a metaphor. It could be engaging in, in euphemism. Maybe it meant that their intense holiness shredded the physics of the, our world. The physics was shredded on the spot. We talked about this in the previous episode. The Mashiach will come. It says that there's going to be Chad Chruv. And essentially it means that the physics of our world as we know them to be will cease to exist. Things will metamorphose into a loftier, higher kind of reality. <laughs> In today's language, a nuclear meltdown. So they're burning everything up. They're literally ripping apart the physics of our world. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is to bring the Torah into this world. Not that the teachings of Kabbalah should rip our world apart. So Yatza Basko, a heavenly voice rings out. It says, you need to go back. You need to go back. Go back to your cave. So here it gets very interesting. They do go back to their cave. They do go back. And here the Gemara tells us, the Gemara simply could have said they went back until a heavenly voice rang out. They didn't leave before there was a heavenly voice, but they seem to have known to begin with that they need to, need to go back for 12 months. They seem to have known this. Why? How did they know it? So Rashi says something very interesting. The Gemara says they went back for 12 months. Why? Because Amri, they said, Mishpat Rishoyim Begehenim, the purgatory or purgatorial process in Gehinnom is 12 months long. They're not with it. And it doesn't seem reasonable they should be punished. It's almost like they were put in an impossible situation. Nechal David is asking if that would be called ratzo without shov, which means to get enamored or swept into a spiritual reality and to lose your moorings, no longer to be anchored in the physical world. So, so here's the thing, Nechal David. It's a very good question, but I, I don't think it, it's a good supposition. I don't think it's quite like that. But let me tell you why. Because ratzo without shov is a sin. It's, it's, it's not fulfilling the will of Hashem. They seem set up here. They didn't just get carried away. They were literally placed in an impossible situation. They were, they were living in a heavenly reality and then thrust into a, a, a material reality again and they couldn't relate to it. They just melted. They melted down. But it seems like that they were almost set up for that. They, they couldn't relate to everyday living. Who are they going to teach Kabbalah to? Angels? 
Kabbalah has to be taught to people on earth. Torah has to become a part of the fabric of our existence. In order for them to become the vehicles through which those teachings would be brought to us, in which that light would enter this world, they needed to become a totally transformed envelope. The problem is you totally transform the envelope. It doesn't fit back into the plug. It doesn't fit into its space. So they, they need, they know they need to be there for 12 months. Why? Because the wicked are in Gehenna and purgatory for 12 months. So Rashi tells us the following. He says, Shanema, because it says, he quotes a verse from Yeshayo Anavi. It's a verse that speaks about guilt. It's a verse that speaks about month by month and week by week. So it seems to be speaking about some kind of completion over here. By weeks and by months. So he says, Just as the weeks have to be made up of all the days of the week, you need six days in Shabbat, so it is also their number. But this has to be the wicked, wicked people, because only wicked people go into purgatory for 12 months. This is the way it's written in Seder Olam. So what does it mean? So the Eitz Yosef says like this. He says that there is actual consequence or punishment, the pain of death, and the pain of, the, of Gehenna, pre-Gehenna pain, where the person, so to speak, pays the price. And then afterwards, says the Eitz Yosef, they go into Gehenna to be remade, reconstituted. And it takes 12 months for a full reconstitution of a person who is so wicked that they have drained every ounce of life and vitality out of the neshama so that the neshama has to literally be remade. It takes 12 months to regrow, to redevelop, to resuscitate a flat neshama. But after 12 months, just like the weeks have to be seven days, just like we have to experience things like the joy of a marriage or the mourning of a loved one that takes seven days a week, a week, that cycle of time, the full cycle of time, the idea of shana, of a full year, which represents the concept of shinui, of changes, the, 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 the cycle of a year represents the full transformation. So when a neshama is gone through the process, the rehabilitative gihinam, purgatory process, it's ready to enter into Ganeden. In other words, they understood that a full reconstitution takes 12 months. Not that they're wicked. Why should they have to go ahead and get him as the wicked? Some maintain, because they did a terrible thing, they destroyed Hashem's world. I, I can't understand it. They were set up. It's not fair. They did a sin. They chose to do something against the will of Hashem. But they knew they needed to be reconstituted. They needed to be remade in a way that they should be able to relate from where they were coming into this new reality. So it took 12 months. 12 months of, of, of solitude, 12 months of spirituality, and 12 months of this kind of rehabilitation to get reacclimatized, rebuilt, as if so they become vehicles for the mystical secrets of Torah in this world, in our world. 
And then the interesting thing is when they speak, it says, Omar. It says, Omar, he said. It doesn't say they said. But then when they looked, wherever they looked, that happened. So clearly, one of them said it, but both of them looked. And we can see when they reemerge from the cave, Rabbi Lazar is still not able to relate to the real world. But Rabbi Shimon now can. Because the Gemara tells us, after these 12 months went by, so Yotzus Abaskal, another heavenly voice rings out. Va'omra the Baskal says, Su'u mi Now go out of your cave. Now they have a divine command. Nafaku to go out. Kol machi, Rebbe Lazar. Wherever Rebbe Lazar was causing destruction, Havimasi Rebbe Shimon, Rebbe Shimon was causing healing. So he burned things and he fixed it. Until Rabbi Shimon finally convinced his son to, to kind of <laughs> take it down a notch. Rabbi Shimon, Amr lay b'ni, he said, my son, for the world, it's enough that you and I are living in a higher headspace, a higher existence. You can't have those expectations of other people. Somebody's got to do it. We are the vehicles. We'll be the carriers of this light into the world. But the rest of the people have to be allowed to live a normal life. So the Maharal of Prague says something fascinating. <laughs> he says, he says how, how does that work? He says, Rabbi Shimon was older. And therefore, he naturally had the ability of rachamim, of compassion. More so than a younger person. He said the younger person would have more of midat adin, more of a harshness, more of a kind of a black and white absolute situation. For Rabbi Lazar, everything at that time in his life was cut and dry. Rabbi Shimon had the ability of mercy. What quite does that mean? So think of it this way. As Hasidus explains in great length, when you look at a situation in a benevolent way, in a kind way, in a generous way. You want to give. You want to share. You want to engage. What if somebody's not deserving? You're not, you're not in that headspace. You're not analyzing. You're not judging. You're just giving. And you're giving freely. They do deserve. They don't deserve. I want to give. From a perspective of judgment, of discipline, you get what you pay for. It's a meritocracy. You deserve, you receive. You don't deserve, you don't get. It's black and white. So who needs mercy? Who needs compassion? If you have chesed, why do you need rachamim? If you can be benevolent, just be benevolent. So here Hasidus explains to us that there's a possibility of a person having a judgmental perspective. A person can be disciplined. He can know what's right and know what's wrong. And yet, despite the fact that he's not ignoring the truth, this person is still able to give anyway. Why well, do you do that? If I'm oblivious, I'm just giving, 
It matters not who deserves, okay? And everybody gets. But if, in fact, you only get what you deserve, that's my perspective. How could I bring myself to give? Somebody who doesn't deserve. And the answer is rachamim, mercy. Rabbi Shimon had already developed that ability because he was older, more mature, of being able to overlook things. You know, they say in English, people mellow with age. People are tigers and fighters and they're very intense and they're demanding and disciplined of themselves, of others. They're harsh. Somehow, it gets mitigated a little. They have room later on to have mercy, to have compassion. Some things change a little bit. So Rabbi Shimon was there, but Rabbi Laza wasn't. The Vilna Gaon puts it a little differently. He suggests that it's not a question of mercy or not mercy. He says, Rabbi Laza went in he was an adolescent. And because he was an adolescent, he simply forgot the ways of the world. He forgot it. He only knew his new reality. And he couldn't somehow relate to, he couldn't reconstitute, bring back the memory because he had forgotten it entirely. But Rabbi Shimon, who had lived his youth and middle age in the real world, and then he had this 12-year, 13-year hiatus, he could still bring to memory. He could still understand, so to speak, where they were coming from. And as such, Rabbi Shimon was able to nonetheless overlook the fact that he wasn't there. He couldn't relate on a personal level, but he could make room for people in his life. And he didn't have to be so demanding, so disciplined, so overwhelmingly harsh. So the Belazar is ripping up the nuclear physics, and Rabbi Shimon is patching things up and putting them back together. Now this is uh, interesting because our sages note that in the Gemara is the Gemara Mesachas Brachas that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai had this opinion that, that um, if you devote yourself to Torah, things will work out. And Rabbi Shmuel argues and he says, no, the Torah says, you have to go out and work for a living. And the Gemara says, many people did follow the path of Rabbi Shmuel and they were successful. And they were not successful. They tried because you have to really be a Reb Shimon to live like that. And if there's any lack of sincerity, any lack of focus, of commitment, it's not going to work. You have to be miraculous to see miracles. So Reb Shimon's living in a different kind of world. But it's despite the fact that he's still living in that world, and he has to live in that world, if he is going to be the vehicle through Hashem gives Kabbalah to the world, nonetheless, Rabbi Shimon is at least able to make room in his heart and in his mind for other people and for other lifestyles and approaches. Now the Gemara says, after Rabbi Shimon kind of comforts his son and he says, you and I will live in a transcendent way. It's good enough for the whole world. Which is similar, our rabbis point out to the fact that it says, Rabbi Shimon said, you and I can exempt the world from judgment. Our merit alone can shield the whole world. So the Gemara says something very interesting happened. At this point, it was Friday late afternoon. 
You'll soon see why that's relevant. Late afternoon on Friday. Bahadi Panya the Maila Shabbata. The word Panya in Hebrew like means lifnot towards evening. As dusk is falling, Shabbat is about to arrive. The last moments, just before Shabbat comes. Chazu Hahusaba. They suddenly saw an old man. He was carrying two bundles of myrtles. Carrying these two bundles of myrtles, he is racing through the twilight. He's got to get home for Shabbat. So they said to him, I want to just give you some Rashi before we go on. Rashi says, If you and I learn Torah on that level, we can bring merit to the world. It doesn't mean everybody's got to live like this. Today, Rashi says, Bros, bundles of myrtles. Why? Rashi adds a very interesting word. Myrtles aren't nearly as beautiful as they are aromatic. They have an aroma. So they are, he comes to make the air pungent. He comes to make a beautiful smell in the house for Shabbat. So they say to him, Hani Lomaloch, what's this about? what Richard is asking. What's this about? Omar Lahu, he said to them, L'chavod Shabbat, this is to honor Shabbat. So they said to him, hmm, Myrtles to honor Shabbat. V'tisniloch b'chad. Why do you have two bundles? I mean, if you're trying to create a Roma, Shouldn't one bundle do it? So he answered them, Chad keneged zocher, v'chad keneged shomer. One corresponds to remember the Shabbos. One corresponds to safeguard, keep the Shabbos. In simple terms, there's things we don't do on Shabbat and things we do on Shabbat. We avoid any kind of creative work and we actively create a holy atmosphere of serenity and sanctity. When he says these words, Omar le Librei, Rabbi Shimon, now turns to his son, Rabbi Shimon Barichai, says to Rabbi Lazar, Chazi, look, Kama chavivin mitzvah al Yisrael. How much do the people of Israel cherish the mitzvahs? Look how much love, look how tender the mitzvahs are to them. Yosef da'atayu, the Gemara says at this point, Rebbe Lozer found comfort. And so, on the, on the leaves of the myrtles, Rabbi Shimon and his son were able to nest and rejoin 
life as we know it. It's like a funny story. It's a funny story. What, what, is, what is this? It's like a big mitzvah. The guy took some, some, a bundle of myrtles. The Ben Yehoyada asks three big questions here. He says, help me out here. It says, they came to him and they said to him, Lama loch. Why do you have it? What does that mean, Lama loch? Hani Lama, what are these for? He said, what are these for you? So he answered them, for to honor Shabbat? So they sort of said, wow, you're bringing the myrtles to honor Shabbat. He should have turned around to his son and said, look, look, the Jewish people, they value Shabbat. They want even the aroma to be different. No, he doesn't say that. He says, if, if that's the reason, why don't you have one? So he says, what do you mean? One is for Zohar, one is for Shomer, the two dimensions of Shabbat. Aha, he said, if so, that's beautiful. He found comfort. If a person says, I have myrtles and I'm trying to honor Shabbat, why wouldn't that comfort him? Why isn't that chaviv? The Torah doesn't say you have to bring home myrtles for Shabbat. And the last question that Ben Yehuda asks, he says, I don't understand. He says, you have a, a, a situation where a person is, is uh, running home and they stop him and they ask him a question and he demonstrates a love for Shabbat. What difference how old he is? Who cares if he's old or young? Maybe it's a bigger thing for a younger person who's very busy. Yeah, the old guy's retired, he has time. Like, what difference does it make what age? They met a man. The man was running home. They said, where are you going? He said, I'm honoring Shabbat. They should have said, wow, it's great. Phenomenal. They cherish the mitzvahs. So the Ben Yoyada says an incredible thing. He says, we have already learned previously in this very chapter of Gemara that a person who's careful about lighting Shabbat candles and Hanukkah lights will have children that are righteous. And that's why we light two candles. For his and for hers. For his, hers and him. His and hers. Husband and wife. And the husband and wife are praying that they together should be blessed with children. The Ben Yoyada suggests that just as a woman's job is to bring light into the house, to honor Shabbos, the husband's job would be to change the aroma in the house, the atmosphere in the house. She brings light. He brings reach. He brings aroma. She brings two candles so they could have children who are righteous, who are wise. He brings two bundles so that they could have one for her, one for him. The merit of bringing good children into the world. This becomes his question. We know the Gemara in Masechet Megillah says that Hadassim are an example, a paradigm for tzaddikim, for righteous. So for light, the candles of the Shabbat candles, ner mitzvah, a mitzvah is a lamp, Torah or Torah is light. The Gemara says, because a mitzvah is a lamp and Torah is or, the person who is going to be meticulous of Izoir, Benedah Shabbos, Havalibbanin Chachamim, will have wise children. So the Ben Yehuda says an unbelievable thing. The person who brings Hadassim home will have children on Tzaddikim.
he says, this is a selfish thing. You have good children. You're proud of your children. You have children who don't behave appropriately. You're ashamed of your children. <laughs> so he says, this is the question. You see this man running. They said, tell me. What is this for you? What is this for you? They saw him with the hadas and they knew what it is. Hani What do you need it for? Because he's an old man. He's not making babies anymore. So he says, what do you need it for? So he says, what do you mean? I want to honor Shabbat. I want to create an atmosphere for Shabbat. So they said, okay, to create atmosphere, you don't need two bundles, one bundle, two bundles. You want to have some myrtles, have some myrtles. Why did you make a point of bringing two bundles? He said to them, this is not about me. It's not about my children. It's not about my merits. It's about Shabbat. I did two, not so I should have a nice aroma in my house. I should honor Shabbat for Zohar V'Shamar. Ah, says Rabbi Shimon. You go out of your way. Your Yiddishkeit is not, in a sense, infused with selfishness so that I will have good children, so that I will have a nice home to live in. You are seeking to honor Hashem. You are seeking to honor the Shabbat. He says, you son, you see? Look how they cherish a mitzvah. Now, the Ben Yehoyada puts it that way. I found there's another Mephirish Similar time, also uh, late, late 19th century. He lived in Vilna. He wrote a, a beautiful work on Agada, which is called Lishmoyali Mudim. He says that when he asked him why he was taking the Hadassim, he said, Is this about you making a nice aroma for yourself? What's it, what's, is it for you? The man says, no, it's for Shabbat. He says, what do you need two for? He says, I'm, I'm doing this, but it's not about me having a nice smell. He says, it's not about me enjoying myself. It's about Shabbat being honored. When Abshimun Bar Yochai saw that people who are involved in everyday life are still able to honor Shabbat for what Shabbat is, he said to Abshimun, we're okay. If people could be self-transcendent and not think about themselves, we're okay. With this Jewish people, we can, we can play ball. We will teach them Torah. They will learn Kabbalah and Mashiach will come. On the first Lag Ba'imer of the Rebbe's Nesias, Lag Ba'imer, 1951, the Rebbe Fabrengt. And towards the end of the Fabrengen, the Rebbe spoke about this very piece of Gemara, about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Lazar leaving the cave. And then seeing this Jew running towards evening on a Friday night. And he's holding the Hadassim. And it's about Zohar V'Shomer. So the Rebbe explained the message of the Gemara as such. The life's mission 
The calling of Rav Shimon Bar Yochai is to reveal the mystical secrets, the inner dimension of Torah. And the Rebbe adds here in the brackets, the revelation of these mystical secrets in this world are directly connected to leaving the cave. Exactly what we've been saying. Exactly the way we learned this. Because through the study of the mystical secrets of Torah, we accelerate and actuate the redemption through Mashiach. As it says in the Raya Rava Mehemna, which is a castle of the Zorb, as I mentioned earlier, with your compilation, the Iu Sefer Azari, this is the book of Zoyar, Yifkun Bey Min Galusa, the Jewish people will leave Galut. In other words, this event, this little encounter, symbolized the beginning of that very transformation. The beginning of the complete redemption. And the Rebbe said that began the process. This is how Reb Shimon Bar Yochai settles into his new role and begins the process. And it's our job to finish it. The Rebbe said something unbelievable. He says, we find ourselves, as the previous Rebbe said, in the proverbial Friday afternoon. Each millennia is a day. We are in 5,700 now it's 5,782. And as such, we are already in what you would call already into the ninth hour. We're getting close to the end. That's Friday afternoon. The seventh millennia is Shabbos. It says it's just before night, dusk is falling. We need to be ready for Shabbat. We need to be ready to greet Mashiach. And to greet Mashiach is a very big deal. It's a very challenging and difficult thing. And people might well ask you and I, we're going to bring the Mashiach? Seriously? How's that happening? So this story is instructive. The story tells us that here was a man who was running on Friday evening, just before Shabbos. That's the time of the story. He doesn't have time. Nobody has time right before Shabbos to make preparations for Shabbat. It's right before Shabbat. Everybody's very busy today. So if you take two bundles of hadasim, two bundles of myrtles, and you have in mind Zohar Vashomer, it's not a big deal, something small to bring, to change the atmosphere a little, to bring a little fresh, sweet, pungent aroma into your life, to honor Shabbat. One corresponding to Zohar, one corresponding to Shomer, positive mitzvahs, negative mitzvahs, creating holiness, avoiding things inappropriate. That begins the process. As the Rebbe said in that 
and a famous maimer that he delivered, really almost the last maimer he delivered on Achron Shal Pesach, the last day of Pesach at the Fabrengen in 1989. In the Hechrim Tav the Rebbe said, one mitzvah kidaboy, one mitzvah done right is all it takes. And somebody's mitzvah done right is going to weigh the scales down forever. And the Rebbe said the specific emphasis is on the hadas. It's on the myrtles. Because the myrtles, as Rashi told us, are about reyach, about aroma. We find this in the four kinds of Sukkot. We have the esrog, which is aromatic and has both fragrance and taste. We have the palm frond, friends, but they represent something which has taste but no fragrance. The willows have neither fragrance nor taste. And the hadasim are fragrant. They have an aroma attached to them. Reach, a powerful smell, can do something food can't. So food keeps body and soul together, as is explained richly in Chassidus. But when a person falls into a faint state, you need to kind of bring them back. Feeding them is not an option. But a very powerful smell can bring a person out of a state of subconsciousness. Because the smell is able to stir the very deepest part of one's psyche. And this is why the coming of Mashiach is characterized by Mashiach's smell. Moireach will smell and know. And this idea, that concept of reach, of stirring the soul through the aroma, is the paradigm for the mystical teachings of Judaism, especially as they are articulated and explained in the teachings of Hasidus. So that's our job now. To learn the mystical part of Torah, to teach the mystical part of Torah, to take in the wonderful fragrance of Hashem's Torah and to share it with anybody and everybody. Because doing so demonstrates our love for Hashem, our devotion to His mitzvahs, and that will bring the story to its successful conclusion. It begins in a cave. It births and spawns the revolution of the Zohar, Kabbalah, and mystical teachings of Judaism, embodied by Lagba Omer. And it ultimately will conclude with the coming of Mashiach, the Mehira will be Amenu speedily, and in our days, Amen. Thank you so much for joining this evening. Agute Nacht. Be well. If you haven't yet, please be so kind as to subscribe and enable notifications. YouTube.com forward slash Shari Mendel Kaplan. I look forward to seeing you back.